Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Fortitudine vincimus. By endurance we conquer. Ernest Shackleton's family motto. On the 9th of April 1916, Ernest Shackleton had led a crew of 27 men out into the open southern ocean in what were essentially wooden rowing boats. To attempt this today would be unthinkable. Storms can rage in the southern ocean, which build waves up to 50 feet, about the height of a four-storey building. To give you an idea, this audio is taken from a YouTube video filmed on MV Uswaya, an ice-strengthened expedition ship sailing through a storm in the Southern Ocean. The video shows a 3,000-ton ship driving through astonishing swells with winds blowing at 70 miles per hour. An enormous wave engulfs the front of the ship up to the bridge windows. For a while, nothing is visible. The Endurance crew were iron men in wooden boats. It was their last-ditch attempt at survival. Their mission had been to cross the Antarctic continent from one side to the other. But their ship, Endurance, had become stuck in the ice of the Weddell Sea before they even made landfall. The men had hoped that the ice would melt and they'd be able to continue on. But eventually, Endurance succumbed to the forces of nature and was crushed by the ice before sinking to the bottom of the sea where she lies to this day. They'd spent 14 months stranded in Antarctica with no contact or help from the outside world. Six of those months were spent living outside on the ice in tents. By the time they launched their small fleet, bound for a small rocky landmass called Elephant Island, seven days sailing to the north, all the sled dogs had been shot or eaten, the supplies were diminished, and it was clear no one was coming to find them. You're listening to the final part of our mini-series that tells the incredible story of the Endurance Expedition, of the often overlooked legends, explorer Tom Crean and Captain Frank Worsley, and of course, their heroic leader, the man they called The Boss, who vowed to bring back every man alive, whatever it took. As you're listening to this, the History Hit team and I are making our way down to the Weddell Sea, to the place where we believe endurance lies on the seafloor. We're joining the incredible expedition run by the Falklands Maritime Heritage Trust. If we find it, it'll be the greatest underwater discovery since the Titanic. So get ready, because I'm taking you with me. Dan Snow's History Hit podcast is the exclusive place to follow in real time the search for the lost endurance shipwreck of Antarctica. I'm Dan Snow, 
And this is Endurance 22. It was the 21st of November, 1915, when the broken and splintered wreck of Endurance finally slipped beneath the ice and down to the bottom of the Weddell Sea. By spring 1916, after six months of camping on the ice, the men were running dangerously low on supplies. They'd taken up a diet of Antarctic game and blubber. Realising how dangerously close to starvation the crew were edging, Shackleton launched the lifeboats into water strewn with breaking up ice flows. Frank Worsley took command of the small lifeboat, the Dudley Docker. He'd been captain on the Endurance. Although a competent seaman, Shackleton had initially felt that he wasn't great at disciplining the inappropriate behaviour of the men. But as Shackleton joined him on board to maintain control, the pair made a good team. Worsley had been born in Akaroa, on the South Island of New Zealand, in 1872, making him 42 when he joined the Endurance Expedition. He was known for his eccentricities. He claimed his cabin on the ship was too stuffy and he would sleep in the passageway. Also, his adventurous spirit. There's a story that when Frank was a child, he and his brother were asked to deliver a horse to the end of Akaroa Harbour. But instead of walking home, they decided to continue on to Wainui, about three miles across the bay, where they built a raft from reeds, a stick for a mast, and used their jackets for sails, paddling all the way back home. At 15, he wanted to pursue a life at sea, and his first voyage took him from Littleton, New Zealand, to London. He was known for pushing the boundaries and one day while at sea climbed the 140-foot mast barefoot and stood balancing at the top. Shackleton hired Worsley on the spot. It was a good move. Worsley would prove himself a remarkable navigator and a vital part in the rescue of the Endurance crew. The second lifeboat in their escaping fleet was the Stancombe Wills, captained by Second Officer Tom Crean alongside navigator Hubert Hudson. Like Worsley, Tom Crean would also prove himself a key member of Shackleton's rescue mission. Crean was born in County Kerry, Ireland, in 1877, one of ten children. His father was a farmer, and Crean would often help out with the daily tasks as a child. Known among his crewmates as the Irish giant, Crean had a reputation not only for his physical stature, but also his unwavering positivity and leadership in even the most hopeless of circumstances. He was one of the most experienced Antarctic explorers to join the Endurance. He'd been south twice with Robert Falcon Scott on the Discovery and on the Terra Nova expedition, where he showed enormous stamina and strength. Crean had been one of the 16 men Scott selected for his team when he set out on the 900-mile journey to the South Pole on October the 24th, 1911. On the long trek, they'd set up depots with supplies for their return journey. As these deposits were established, the men who were no longer needed to pull supplies returned to their starting base. The plan was for just a few men to escort Scott on the final leg of the journey. Lieutenant Edward Evans, Petty Officers William Lashley and Tom Crean were the last three sent back on January the 4th, 1912. Crean was emotional at having to turn back so close to the South Pole. In his diary, Scott wrote, Poor old Crean wept. On their return journey, Lieutenant Edward Evans became seriously ill with scurvy. Crean and Lashley pulled his supplies from him and eventually pulled him on a sledge for 13 hours a day for four days. Evans told them to leave him, saying that otherwise none of them would survive. They kept going, back towards base camp, 
It snowed heavily, and eventually they were no longer able to move the sledge. Their food supply was almost exhausted, so they decided to split up. Lashley remained with Evans in a tent, while Crean set out on his own to their base, 34 miles away. It took him 18 hours to reach the camp, and he was able to get help. Evans, Lashley and Crean would all make it back to safety. Incidentally, Scott was not so lucky. He'd reached the South Pole only to discover that he'd lost the race to the Norwegian explorer Roel Amundsen. Scott never made it back to base camp on his return journey from the Pole. His body was later found frozen in his tent, 10 miles from safety. Of Crean's actions, polar explorer H.G. Ponting wrote in his 1923 book, The Great White South, that Crean's lone march that day was one of the finest feats in an adventure that is an epic of splendid episodes. The largest boat in their tiny flotilla was the James Caird, captained by Shackleton. After months of agonising stasis on the pack ice, moving through the free-flowing water was bliss. In his diary, Shackleton wrote, Dark blue and sapphire green ran the seas. Our sails were soon up, and with a fair wind we moved over the waves like three Viking ships on the quest of a lost Atlantis. With the sheet well out and the sun shining bright above, we enjoyed for a few hours a sense of the freedom and magic of the sea, compensating us for pain and trouble in the days that had passed. At last we were free from the ice, in water that our boats could navigate. Although beautifully written, the reality was somewhat less romantic. Frank Worsley didn't sleep for 80 hours. Frank Wilde, Shackleton's second-in-command, wrote that at least half the party were insane. But a team in the strongest sense... Shackleton and the men encouraged each other, rowing resolutely towards their goal. The men always managed to reply cheerfully. One of the people on the Stankham Wills shouted, We're doing all right, but I would like some dry mitts. The jest brought a smile to cracked lips. He might as well have asked for the moon. The only dry things aboard the boats were swollen mouths and burning tongues. Thirst is one of the troubles that confront the traveller in polar regions. Ice may be plentiful on every hand, but it does not become drinkable until it is melted and the amount that may be dissolved in the mouth is limited. We had been thirsty during the days of heavy pulling in the pack and our condition was aggravated quickly by the salt spray. On April the 15th, dehydrated, hungry and exhausted, they clambered ashore on Elephant Island. They hadn't touched dry land for 497 days. On Elephant, the crew managed to set up a temporary base where the ship's artist, George Marston, allowed his remaining oil paints to be used as glue on the canvases covering the shelters for extra waterproofing. Shackleton took a brief examination of their surroundings before bed to get a lay of the land. What he'd learnt wasn't promising. The beach where they'd set up camp would be underwater in the spring tides when whipped up by gale-force winds. They would need to find somewhere else to stay. I decided not to share with the men the knowledge of the uncertainties of our situation until they had enjoyed the full sweetness of rest, untroubled by the thought that at any minute they might be called to face peril again. The threat of the sea had been our portion during many, many days, and a respite 
meant much to wearied bodies and jaded minds. The men slept for 18 hours that first night. In the days that followed, it became clear that Elephant Island was an inhospitable place to stay. The fate of his crew weighed heavily on Shackleton. We took down the tents and re-pitched them close against the high rocks at the seaward end of the spit, where large boulders made an uncomfortable resting place. Snow was falling heavily. Then all hands had to assist in pulling the boats farther up the beach, and at this task we suffered a serious misfortune. Two of our four bags of clothing had been placed under the bilge of the James Caird, and before we realised the danger, a wave had lifted the boat and carried the two bags back into the surf. We had no chance of recovering them. This accident did not complete the tale of the night's misfortunes. The big eight-man tent was blown to pieces in the early morning. Some of the men who had occupied it took refuge in other tents, but several remained in their sleeping bags under the fragments of cloth until it was time to turn out. Frank Worsley remembers that Shackleton was bowed down and aged by the ordeal accentuated by the responsibility and strain of holding the boats together and keeping his men alive. Shackleton decided that most of the group and two of the boats were incapable of escaping, so he would take five fit men in the James Caird lifeboat and go in search of help. A boat journey in search of relief was necessary and must not be delayed. That conclusion was forced upon me. The nearest port where assistance could certainly be secured was Port Stanley in the Falkland Islands, 540 miles away but we could scarcely hope to beat up against the prevailing northwesterly wind in a frail and weakened boat with a small sail area. South Georgia was over 800 miles away, but lay in the area of the west winds, and I could count upon finding whalers at any of the whaling stations on the east coast. A boat party might make the voyage and be back with relief within a month, provided that the sea was clear of ice and the boat survived the great seas. It was not difficult to decide that South Georgia must be the objective and I proceeded to plan ways and means. The hazards of a boat journey across 800 miles of stormy sub-Antarctic ocean were obvious, but I calculated that at worst the venture would add nothing to the risks of the men left on the island. There would be fewer mouths to feed during the winter, and the boat would not require to take more than one month's provision for six men, for if we did not make South Georgia in that time, we were sure to go under. A consideration that had weight with me was that there was no chance at all of any search being made for us on Elephant Island. Of Shackleton's decision to make the perilous journey, Captain Frank Worsley wrote in his diary that It was certain that a man of such heroic mind and self-sacrificing nature as Shackleton would undertake this most dangerous and difficult task himself. He was, in fact, unable by nature to do otherwise. Being a born leader... He had to lead in the position of most danger, difficulty and responsibility. I've seen him turn pale, yet force himself into the post of greatest peril. That was his type of courage. He would do the job that he was most afraid of. Shackleton's first choices for the boat's crew were Frank Worsley and Tom Crean, who begged to go. Shackleton was confident that Crean would persevere to the bitter end, and he had great faith in Worsley's skills as a navigator, especially his ability to work out their position using celestial navigation. For the remaining places, Shackleton requested volunteers, and of the many who came forward, he chose two strong sailors, John Vincent and Timothy McCarthy. He offered the final place to the carpenter, Harry McNish. Shackleton's second-in-command, Frank Wilde, would assume full command of the rest of the crew who stayed on Elephant Island. 
The weather during those days of preparation was severe. Yet the men sat in the snow, sewing canvas onto the James Caird to create a deck covering, laughing, bantering and getting frostbite. The six-man crew launched the James Caird on the 24th of April, 1916. Frank Worsley remembered. We knew it would be the hardest thing we'd ever undertaken, for the Antarctic winter had set in and we were about to cross one of the worst seas in the world. A few handshakes, we set sail, let go the mooring line and started. Cheers, yells and arm-waving from the boats and shore were answered by us to the full extent of our lungs. A course was set due north, as opposed to heading directly for South Georgia, which lay in a more northeasterly direction. This was to avoid the menacing ice fields that were forming. It was half an hour past noon. I steered north for the open sea. We were off. The sun shone, the sea sparkled, a fresh west wind blew, and our spirits were high. By midnight, they'd worked their way through the ice and left it behind, but the sea swell was rising. By morning, they travelled 52 miles from Elephant Island. The seas were heavy. The wind blew at 50 miles an hour. In the open boat, the men's skin soon became raw and painful from the icy salt water that drenched their clothing. Designed for Antarctic sledging, it wasn't waterproof. Certainly wasn't stormproof. As on the endurance, Shackleton established an onboard routine. Two three-man watches, with one man at the helm steering the boat, another at the sails, and a third on bailing duty. The off-duty trio would rest in the tiny covered space in the bows. Every four hours, they switched over. The difficulty of movement in the boat would have had its humorous side if it had not involved us in so many aches and pains. The success of the crossing depended on Worsley's navigation, which was based on brief sightings of the sun. Meanwhile, Tom Crean was designated cook. He somehow managed to keep the men fed with food prepared on the stove, despite the sea spray, winds and constant rolling of the boat. After a few days, the James Caird reached the notorious Drake Passage, where four-storey waves build and engulf even the hulking vessels of today. The tale of the next 16 days is one of supreme strife amid heaving waters. The sub-Antarctic Ocean lived up to its evil winter reputation. The boat was high enough to catch the wind, and as she drifted to leeward, the drag of the anchor kept her head to windward. Thus, our boat took most of the seas more or less end-on. Even then, the crests of the waves often would curl right over us, and we shipped a great deal of water, which necessitated unceasing bailing and pumping. Looking out a beam, we would see a hollow like a tunnel formed as the crest of a big wave toppled over onto the swelling body of water. A thousand times it appeared as though the James Caird must be engulfed, but the boat lived. The southwesterly gale had its birthplace above the Antarctic continent, and its freezing breath lowered the temperature far towards zero. The sprays froze upon the boat and gave bows, sides and decking a heavy coat of mail. This accumulation of ice reduced the buoyancy of the boat, and to that extent was an added peril. The freezing weather and lack of proper shelter took its toll on their bodies. Another of our troubles worth mentioning here was the chafing of our legs by our wet clothes, which had not been changed now for seven months. 
The insides of our thighs were rubbed raw, and the one tube of hazeline cream in our medicine chest did not go far in alleviating our pain, which was increased by the bite of the salt water. We thought at the time that we never slept. The fact was that we would doze off uncomfortably, to be aroused quickly by some new ache or another call to effort. My own share of the general unpleasantness was accentuated by a finely developed bout of sciatica. I had become possessor of this originally on the flow several months earlier. Despite the unbearable conditions, their spirits remained intact. One of the memories that comes to me from those days is of Crean singing at the tiller. He always sang while he was steering, and nobody ever discovered what the song was. It was devoid of tune and as monotonous as the chanting of a Buddhist monk at his prayers. Yet somehow, it was cheerful. After 14 days of sailing, Navigator Worsley informed Shackleton that he couldn't be sure of their position. A fierce southwesterly wind was blowing, and Shackleton feared being swept right past the island. So his plan was to try and get the James Caird to arrive at South Georgia anywhere on the uninhabited southwest coast, just to ensure they made landfall. This was the opposite side of the island from the inhabited whaling stations, like Stromness. It was a good call. Later that day, the men noticed floating seaweed. They also saw cormorants, which are known to rarely venture far from land. The next day, the icy mountains of South Georgia loomed on the horizon. The hours that followed were some of the most treacherous of the whole journey. They survived a full hurricane, but they managed to land after 16 treacherous days at sea. They'd travelled 800 miles from Elephant Island. They were completely spent. The final stage of the journey had still to be attempted. I realised that the condition of the party generally, and particularly of McNeish and Vincent, would prevent us putting to sea again except under pressure of dire necessity. Our boat, moreover, had been weakened by the cutting away of the topsides, and I doubted if we could weather the island. We were still 150 miles away from Stromness whaling station by sea. The alternative was to attempt the crossing of the island. If we could not get over, then we must try to secure enough food and fuel to keep us alive through the winter, but this possibility was scarcely thinkable. Over on Elephant Island, 22 men were waiting for the relief that we alone could secure for them. Their plight was worse than ours. We must push on somehow. 30 miles overland. Shackleton knew the only option was to cross the island on foot. Unable to make that journey, John Vincent, Timothy McCarthy and Harry McNish stayed at the beach camp, while Shackleton, Worsley and Crean made preparations to traverse the untamed island. On the 18th of May, the men set out across uncharted territory. We were a curious-looking party on that bright morning, but we were feeling happy. We even broke into song, and, but for our Robinson Crusoe appearance, a casual observer might have taken us for a picnic party, sailing in a Norwegian fjord, or one of the beautiful sounds of the west coast of New Zealand. The wind blew fresh and strong, and a small sea broke on the coast as we advanced. The trio set off with no tents, no sleeping bags, and little food and water. They were intent on making the journey in one go. An ice sheet covered most of the interior, filling the valleys and disguising the configurations of the land, which indeed showed only in big rocky ridges, peaks and nunataks. They hammered nails through the soles of their boots to serve as crampons on the slippery ice mountains, marching, climbing and clambering. 
At the end of the first day, they descended an icy peak 3,000 feet high. But once up and over the top, they needed to come back down the other side. A devilish fog began to circle the peak and the temperatures dropped. They knew they'd have to get to the bottom of the valley if they were to survive. At first, they attempted to cut steps into the ice to make their way down. But Shackleton quickly determined that this was far too slow. He suggested the unthinkable. They would step off the near precipice in front of them and slide down. They could see very little. The slope could easily have led to a sheer drop of thousands of feet, but they had no other options. The three men called up their pieces of rope into three pads. Shackleton sat in front, Worsley straddled his legs around Shackleton, and Crean sat behind Worsley doing the same. They were a sort of makeshift human sledge. Without pausing, they launched themselves into the unknown below. The slope began to level out, and their speed slowed to a stop. Worsley estimated they'd travelled around 3,000 feet in about three minutes. We seemed to shoot into space. For a moment, my hair stood on end. Then, quite suddenly, I felt a glow and knew that I was grinning. I was actually enjoying it. It was most exhilarating. We were shooting down the side of an almost precipitous mountain at nearly a mile a minute. I yelled with excitement and found that Shackleton and Crean were yelling too. It seemed ridiculously safe. To hell with the rocks. The men shook hands and Shackleton wryly commented, it's not good to do that kind of thing too often. A quick break and a hot meal, then they continued onwards. With the adrenaline wearing off, Shackleton, Worsley and Crean were exhausted, their nerves frayed. Getting to the whaling station at Stromness was a game largely of guesswork. Another six hours of hiking and they reached the crevasses of a large glacier. They knew there were no glaciers in Stromness, so they must have taken a wrong turn. It was a blow to their spirits. The trio took stock for a moment, huddled together, and Shackleton suggested that they take a half-hour nap. Within a minute, my two companions were fast asleep. I realised that it would be disastrous if we all slumbered together, for sleep under such conditions merges into death. After five minutes, I shook them into consciousness again, told them that they had slept for half an hour, and gave the word for a fresh start. We were so stiff that for the first two or three hundred yards, we marched with our knees bent. They climbed back up and made their way through a gap in a line of snowy peaks, and as they approached, they saw mountains that they recognised surrounding Stromness Bay. At 6.30am, Shackleton was convinced that he heard a steam whistle, the sound of the whalers being summoned to work. He didn't dare be certain the disappointment would have been too much. But then, half an hour later, they heard it again, loud and clear. Right to the minute, the steam whistle came to us, borne clearly on the wind across the intervening miles of rock and snow. Never had any one of us heard sweeter music. It was the first sound of the rest of humanity they'd heard since December 1914, when they departed from South Georgia themselves at the beginning of the expedition. They clambered down through the peaks to Stromness. They'd arrived. It had taken them 36 hours, which they'd completed without rest. It was the first ever journey by foot across South Georgia. 
You're listening to Endurance 22 and the extraordinary story of the Endurance Expedition. We'll be back in just a moment. Hello, I'm James Rogers, and over on the History Hit Warfare podcast, I bring you cutting-edge military histories from around the world. Why was Sitting Bull such a remarkable leader? What was Napoleon's greatest ever battle? How did the Cuban Missile Crisis almost turn the Cold War hot? And who dropped the world's largest nuclear bomb on the Arctic? Through interviews with world-leading historians, policy experts, and the veterans who served, we find the answers to these questions and so much more. So come and join us on the History Hit Warfare podcast, where we're on the front lines of military history. Have you ever wondered if the Hanging Gardens of Babylon were actually real? Or what made Alexander so great? Join me, Tristan Hughes, twice a week, every week on the Ancients from History hit, where I'm joined by leading academics, best-selling authors, and world-class archaeologists to shine a light on some of ancient history's most fascinating questions, like who built Stonehenge and why? What are the Dead Sea Scrolls and why are they so valuable? And were the Spartan warriors really as formidable as the history books say? Join me, Tristan Hughes, twice a week, every week on the Ancients from History hit wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Shivering with cold, yet with hearts light and happy, we set off towards the whaling station, now not more than a mile and a half distant. The difficulties of the journey lay behind us. We tried to straighten ourselves up a bit, for the thought that there might be women at the station made us painfully conscious of our uncivilised appearance. Our beards were long and our hair was matted. We were unwashed and the garments that we had worn for nearly a year without a change were tattered and stained. Three more unpleasant-looking ruffians could hardly have been imagined. Worsley produced several safety pins from some corner of his garments and effected some temporary repairs that really emphasised his general disrepair. Down we hurried, and when quite close to the station, we met two small boys, ten or twelve years of age. I asked these lads where the manager's house was situated. They did not answer. They gave us one look, a comprehensive look, that did not need to be repeated. Then they ran from us as fast as their legs would carry them. We reached the outskirts of the station and passed through the digesting house, which was dark inside. Emerging at the other end, we met an old man who started as if he had seen the devil himself and gave us no time to ask any question. He hurried away. This greeting was not friendly. Then we came to the wharf, where the man in charge stuck to his station. I asked him if the manager was in the house. Yes, he said, as he stared at us. We would like to see him, said I. Who are you? he asked. We have lost our ship. And come over the island, I replied. You have come over the island? 
he said in a tone of entire disbelief. The man went towards the manager's house and we followed him. An old Norwegian whaler recorded the scene when Shackleton and his comrades stood before the station manager, Thoralf Sørle. He remembered, The manager said, Who the hell are you? The terrible bearded man in the centre of the three said very quietly, My name is Shackleton. Me? I turned away and wept. The manager gave the men food and fresh clothes. The beds they were given were so comfortable they found it hard to sleep. That night, there was a terrible blizzard. Had they still been on the mountains, they would certainly have perished. The next morning, a crew was assembled to rescue McCarthy, McNish and Vincent from the other side of the island. Plans were then made to return to Elephant Island to rescue the rest of the Endurance crew, who'd been waiting under the command of Frank Wilde. Shackleton had no idea if the men were even still alive. As the weeks passed, Shackleton struggled to find a vessel that could handle the journey back across the Southern Ocean and through the ice flows that were forming. He made several attempts in various ships, but none were up to the job. On the fourth attempt, he found success. The little steamer made a quick run down in comparatively fine weather. We approached the island in a thick fog. I did not dare to wait for this to clear. And at 10am on August the 30th, we passed some stranded bergs. Then we saw the sea breaking on a reef, and I knew that we were just outside the island. It was an anxious moment, for we had still to locate the camp, and the pack could not be trusted to allow time for a prolonged search in thick weather. But presently, the fog lifted and revealed the cliffs and glaciers of Elephant Island. I proceeded to the east, and at 11.40am, Worsley's keen eyes detected the camp, almost invisible under its covering of snow. The men ashore saw us at the same time, and we saw tiny black figures hurry to the beach and wave signals to us. I saw a little figure on a surf-beaten rock and recognised Wilde. As I came nearer, I called out, Are you all well? And he answered, We're all well, boss. And then I heard three cheers. As I drew close to the rock, I flung packets of cigarettes ashore. They fell on them like hungry tigers, for well I knew that for months tobacco was dreamed of and talked of. Some of the hands were in a rather bad way, but Wilde had held the party together and kept hope alive in their hearts. There was no time then to exchange news or congratulations. I did not even go up to the beach to see the camp which Wilde assured me had been much improved. A heavy sea was running and a change of wind might bring the ice back at any time. I hurried the party aboard with all possible speed, taking also the records of the expedition and essential portions of equipment. Everybody was aboard the Yeltsha within an hour and we steamed north at the little steamer's best speed. The ice was open still and nothing worse than an expanse of stormy ocean separated us from the South American coast. On the journey back to South America, with every single man of his endurance crew exhausted but alive, Shackleton learned how the rest of his men had managed to survive the inhospitable months on Elephant Island. They all had frostbite to various degrees. Lack of food was not the biggest problem they'd faced. It was the wind. Their tents that had survived months on the Antarctic pack ice were torn to ribbons on Elephant Island, where the winds blow at up to 70 or even 90 miles per hour. At first, they'd sheltered under the upside-down lifeboats, but then began excavating an ice cave 
The high temperature, however, caused a continuous stream of water to drip from the roof and sides of the ice cave, and as with 22 men living in it, the temperature would be practically always above freezing, there would have been no hope of dry quarters for them there. Under the direction of Wilde, they therefore collected some big flat stones, and with these they erected two substantial walls four feet high and 19 feet apart. This hut became their sanctuary from the blizzards and cold. The floor was at first covered with snow and ice frozen in amongst the pebbles. This was cleared out and the remainder of the tents spread out over the stones. Within the shelter of these cramped but comparatively palatial quarters, cheerfulness once more reigned amongst the party. The blizzard, however, soon discovered the flaws in the architecture of their hut, and the fine drift snow forced its way through the crevices between the stones forming the end walls. Jaeger sleeping bags and coats were spread over the outside of these walls, packed over with snow and securely frozen up, effectively keeping out this drift. The men installed a chimney so they could cook inside the hut. They fashioned lamps out of sardine tins with surgical bandages as wicks. They added windows by sewing the glass lids of chronometer boxes, a sort of timekeeping device, into the canvas walls they directed. It meant there was enough light for the men to read and sew their clothes that were quite literally falling apart on their bodies. Naturally, it didn't take long for the hut to become very grimy, the constant burning of blubber for the stove and the lamps. Sleeping on the hard pebbles gave the men painful aches and sores, It's not hard to imagine the stench. They hadn't been able to wash properly for ten months since abandoning the ship. In his diary, Shackleton included passages from the other men who kept accounts of their experiences on Elephant Island. One unnamed explorer wrote, For one thing, we have no soap or towels, only bare necessities being brought with us. And again, had we possessed these articles, our supply of fuel would only permit us to melt enough ice for drinking purposes. Had one man washed half a dozen others, would have had to go without a drink all day. One cannot suck ice to relieve the thirst, as at these low temperatures it cracks the lips and blisters the tongue. Still, we are all very cheerful. It was an enormous relief when the Yeltsho appeared on the horizon with their leader waving from the deck. They'd been marooned for 105 days. All 28 men on endurance had now made it back home alive. The survival of Shackleton's crew was hailed as one of the most extraordinary feats of the age. But the courage and tragedy of the Ross Sea Party, their sister crew on the opposite side of Antarctica during the expedition, is often forgotten. The Aurora was the second ship of the Trans-Antarctic Expedition. It sailed from New Zealand to the Ross Sea on the other side of Antarctica to lay depots of supplies at intervals between the pole and the sea on the other side. The plan was that when Endurance landed at Vashal Bay and Shackleton's party hiked to the pole and passed, they would only need to carry supplies for the first half of the journey as supplies would be waiting for them on the other side. When the Endurance got trapped, the land crossing obviously never happened. But with no way of informing the Aurora of what had occurred, the Aurora crew continued to fulfil their directive, with ten men sledging across their side of the Antarctic to lay deposits as instructed. But on their return journey back to the ship waiting in the Ross Sea, They discovered she'd been blown out to sea with the rest of their crew on board. The ship was also solidly encased in an ice floe that had detached from the main pack and had been blown out to sea by a blizzard. It drifted there for ten months before managing to return to New Zealand. Meanwhile, the ten men who were stuck on the ice were left to fend for themselves. Their captain was Aeneas McIntosh, a British merchant naval officer 
who joined Shackleton on his previous Nimrod expedition. He'd intended to use the Aurora as the party's main living quarters, so most of the men who went ashore left their personal gear, food, equipment and fuel aboard the ship. When they were stranded, they'd been left with essentially just the clothes on their back. With no idea of what was going on on the other side of the continent, they believed Shackleton's life would depend on them, so they continued their treacherous work. Three men died in the process. Captain McIntosh and Victor Hayward disappeared while walking across the frozen surface of McMurdo Sound. Arnold Spencer Smith, the expedition's chaplain and photographer, died of scurvy. The seven survivors were eventually rescued by Shackleton in 1917 when he returned with the Aurora to find them. During those months stranded on the ice, laying deposits despite their perilous circumstances, their sledging journeys encompassed 169 days, greater than any journey ever made by Shackleton, Robert Scott or Roald Amundsen. It was an extraordinary achievement. Shackleton and the Endurance crew returned to England in the midst of World War I. Shackleton was considered too old to be conscripted, and his heart condition made him ineligible. It was somewhat ironic, given the feat he'd just endured. Nevertheless, he still volunteered, and while he never fought directly at the front, he had a variety of postings from Buenos Aires to Mamansk in Russia. After the armistice was signed in November 1918, he returned home to publish South his diary that told the entire story of the Endurance Expedition, extracts of which you've heard in this series. The Antarctic kept its hold on Shackleton, and despite promises to his family, in 1921 he set out once again for the great white continent, this time to circumnavigate it by sea. But he'd never see Antarctica again. By the time the party reached Rio de Janeiro, Shackleton had fallen ill. He refused to return the ship to England or seek treatment, and his quest south continued. On the 5th of January 1922, while the ship was off the coast of South Georgia, the expedition's physician, Alexander Macklin, was called to Shackleton's cabin and noticed that he was gravely ill. Macklin suggested to Shackleton that he take things easier in the future, to which Shackleton replied, You're always wanting me to give up something. What do you want me to give up now? These were the last words ever spoken by Sir Ernest Shackleton. A few moments later, he suffered a fatal heart attack. He was 47. At the request of his wife, Shackleton was buried there in Gritviken, South Georgia. His death marked the end of the so-called heroic age of Antarctic exploration. Frank Worsley, the captain of endurance and the man who'd navigated a wooden rowing boat across the Southern Ocean, assisted Shackleton in the rescue of the Ross Sea Party. After his return to England in April 1917, he served in the Royal Navy during the First World War. He spent 10 months at sea commanding Q-ships, taking on Germany's U-boats. He was known to his friends as Depth Charge Bill for his particular skill when it came to destroying German submarines. Wolsey joined Shackleton again in 1921 as navigator on Shackleton's ultimate journey to Antarctica, on which Shackleton passed away. It was also Wolsey's last expedition south, but he wrote and lectured on his Antarctic adventures for many years after. Worsley died in February 1943 and was honoured with a full naval funeral. His ashes were scattered in the sea. 
The Irish giant, Tom Crean, returned to Britain and continued to serve in the Royal Navy until 1920. He received three polar medals for his achievements throughout his career. Crean then returned to Ireland and lived out the rest of his life quietly in his native Kerry with his wife and children. The family ran a pub called the South Pole Inn in his hometown of Annas Call. It's still open for business today. Many other members of the crew served during the First World War. Several were wounded and two killed. Among the dead was Tim McCarthy, one of Shackleton's comrades on the open boat journey to South Georgia. While they never managed to cross the continent, the Endurance crew had accomplished a feat perhaps even more impressive. What fascinates and astonishes me is Shackleton's dedication to saving and protecting his men, leading from the front, bearing any hardship. What's also so impressive is the resourcefulness and improvisation that enabled them all to endure one of the most hostile places on Earth. Their survival was the success story. While Shackleton failed in his ultimate goal, his successful rescue mission has earned him an epic reputation, much greater than anyone, including himself, could ever have imagined. You've been listening to Endurance 22, History Hit's exclusive coverage of the Falklands Maritime Heritage Trust's expedition to find the missing Endurance shipwreck. We're following in real time the search for the Endurance shipwreck down in the Weddell Sea, so keep an eye out on our podcast feed for episodes with the title Endurance 22, and which have the special artwork that you can see in this episode. We'll soon be bringing you podcasts recorded down in the Antarctic. But for now, be sure to subscribe to History Hit TV. It's our digital history channel with hundreds of hours of documentaries. Just follow the link in the description of this podcast and you'll get two weeks free when you sign up today. As a subscriber, you'll also get access to our audiobooks, which includes the entirety of Shackleton's account of the Endurance Expedition South. I'm Dan Snow, and this episode was produced by Mariana de Forge. Shackleton's diary is read by Dan Aspel, and Frank Worsley's was read by Matt Lewis. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.